Discovery of Recovery, featuring Anne Real. Anne Real, author of Discovery of Recovery, talks about how her book provides a guidebook for rebuilding your life in recovery. She discusses how to get more comfortable with self-discovery, the difference between behavior and self. In order to help others heal, we need to love them without an agenda. This is Talking Addiction and Recovery, the podcast talking, you guessed it, all about addiction and recovery. Join your host, licensed professional counselor, Andrew J. Schreier, as he and his guests break down recovery topics with raw honesty, delving into niche conversations around the topics of substance abuse, mental health, and gambling. We intend to meet individuals where they are on their own personal journey of recovery with dignity, respect, and compassion. We'll do more than talk addiction and recovery. We'll explore it. We're glad you've joined us. Here with today's episode, your host, Andrew Schreier. Our guest on this episode is Anne Real, and she is the author of Discovery of Recovery, How to Rebuild Your Life in Recovery, a psychiatric RN and a mental health coach who has worked across the USA, Ukraine, and Bali. She is passionate about empowering individuals to thrive in recovery and overcome challenges. Anne excels in guiding her readers through holistic transformation of mind, body, and spirit. Her book provides evidence-based practices and spiritual wisdom. By incorporating powerful techniques to reprogram the mind and cultivate emotional resilience and self-esteem, Anne offers a comprehensive toolkit to support clients on their transformation journey toward rebuilding their lives and becoming stronger and happier versions of themselves. You can learn more and find her on Instagram at Anne.Real. You can go to her website, A-N-N-R-E-A-L.com. You can also find her on YouTube at Anne Real Recovery, and her book can be found on Amazon. Hello, Anne Real, and welcome to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. Hello, very excited to be here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And you are the author of Discovery of Recovery, How to Rebuild Your Life in Recovery. Now, one thing that stood out when I read it right away was you don't spend a whole lot of time diving into your story, you get right into like, these are some things to start doing. What what was your approach to writing it that way? Honestly saying I wanted to make my book as helpful to my reader as possible. And I did include the preface with my story where I share it for readers to relate to it and to see that, you know, I'm not talking about it out of nowhere I went through it and um, I know exactly how it feels like but my book is focused on the reader how can I help the reader of the book yeah I think that was interesting because a lot of books I've read from people sort of like one part is let me tell you all about my story how how things got to where they they were and then how they got better and yours was really almost like diving right into it someone can start taking things like practical things right out the gate it wouldn't take them half the book to be like okay now let's learn how to do this 
Exactly. And that was the intention. Actually, my first draft was written without a preface, but my editor was like, you need to add it for <laughs> for the reader to relate to it. So, of course, I shared my story for that reason. The um, part of the what stood out right away, and I think it was in, in the preface was and there's a there's a quote I want to share, which was just as one can't fully understand the vast mystery of the outside world. The inner world is just the same, deep, limitless, and mysterious. I'm I'm curious where you stand on sometimes like times discovery can be thrilling and exciting, but other times the idea of discovery for people can also be terrifying and dreadful. Yeah. Yeah. So like how how do we get to a spot where people are more in that spot of curiosity and wanting to know what's what's out there instead of being afraid to find those things thank you that's a great question well i chose to add that phrase because i spent so many hours days actually in my recovery dwelling to the past issues and i thought that's where i'm going to find an answer just dwelling on those memories and trying to find some, um, um, yeah, some, some answers. However, what I notice is that that dwelling steals the present moment from me. And actually that process of self-discovery is not that related to the past, but more to the present. Who am I today? Who am I right now how can i um share who i am how can i be authentic today in the present moment rather than you know complex dwelling on uh, on the past yeah it seems like there's a almost like a very quick like slingshot between someone that's been caught so long into dwelling about the past and doing all that and then suddenly wanting to really project forward into the future with those things. I'm curious how, how people really make that transition, you know, from like, can you think about what helped you in that transition from dwelling into the past and then wanting to change that and look more towards the, the mysteries and the, all the things that would be great about the future? Uh, sure. I think what helped me the most is actually changing my relationship with emotion the most because what drugs to the past is emotions that arise sometimes in present moment where experience some situation that reminds emotional experience from the past. So what I've learned in my recovery that emotions are given to us for a reason, um, just like other senses. You know, we have physical senses, uh, pain, seeing, taste, and physical senses ensure our physical well-being when emotional senses ensure our psychological well-being. And some physical um, senses that we experience might be uncomfortable, like bad smell or pain. However, they are useful. They teach us something. And if I put my hand on a stove, for example, for a long time, that sensation of pain, while uncomfortable, it saves me from burning myself to death. In the same way, emotion. Um, if I'm experiencing anger, what can I learn from it? Because anger is an emotion, for example, that teaches 
us about our boundaries. What do we allow in our life? What we not allow in our life? And I think that what shifted um, my experience from dwelling on the past versus learning and applying that knowledge and moving forward, like completely rebuilding my relationship with emotions. Yeah, that's a that's one that we don't always talk about, like in the sense of we talk about coping with emotions, we talk about managing emotions, but the way you just described it, you don't hear very often our relationship with emotions, like that very important connection that we have, that it isn't just something that happens and then we throw a coping skill at it, but there's actually more of a complex you know, connection going on between our emotions. It's just not something to quickly get rid of or to avoid, but actually it's, it's a big part of, of how we function. Exactly. And uh, yeah, my belief (laughs) is that emotions are messengers, you know, you don't kill the messenger. It's not the journalist fault that some catastrophe happened they just inform us about what's happening and i feel the same way about the emotions even the most uncomfortable ones such as hatred are actually very useful because hatred teaches us that we're staying far too long and far too close to something or someone that hurts us so so much so it's usually love that's been violated that manifests as hatred and we don't want to run away from it we want to learn from it and then use that learning to grow versus in addiction, we just numb out and keep staying stuck in the circumstances with the people that keeps hurting us by just numbing the pain. But, you know, it's just like an example with the stove, we keep burning ourselves <laughs> uh, consistently up to the point that it becomes unbearable and we want to crawl out of our skin and numb out. And sometimes chemically is the only option how we can numb out. And I think what's even more challenging is we spent so many years growing and developing. And then later on, we realize the need to do this with our emotions when we spent so long not doing that. Like, I think that's something that we should be talking with kids with at a young age. Um, Adolescence is like a prime time with that. But there's so many times when if I'm working with someone in like a therapy session And I'm working with them as they're an adult, you know, like they're middle-aged, later adult. And now I'm just talking to them about the functions of emotions and all that. Like, this is something that should have been taught probably a very long time ago. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a beautiful work that you're doing with, uh, that you mentioned with youth. I think it's so important to educate people because we can prevent addiction from happening in the first place when we're doing it. And many people in recovery actually say that they feel like five-year-old kids stuck into grown-up person's body, having all of this responsibility, all all this life. And again, having the coping skills of five-year <laughs> uh, child to deal with this, of course, it feels overwhelming and hard to manage. Now, this is, uh, as we talk about this, I'm very intrigued to know. I also think there's something about how comfortable we are with other people's emotions. So like you got like, a, you know, a child and a parent, you've got like 
you know, a significant, significant other and a spouse, um, you know, you have coworkers, colleagues, like fellow students. Part of it is also like, how do we do when we are around other people, when they're experiencing their emotions? I think that plays a big role in some of the, the things that we see with some, you know, conflict with one another. Um, and just, we always don't do well, not only with our own, but we also don't do the best with sitting with other people's emotions. Exactly. I think you're straight to the point mentioning that. And I think that's where assertiveness comes into play. I think it's a crucial skill for uh, staying sober. And addiction gives us a superpower to tolerate most uncomfortable things. It gives us very strong frustration tolerance, but it's a really bad superpower to have, especially when it comes to the addiction, because by numbing out our pain, we lose all the motivation to walk away from it, uh, to uh, walk away from people and circumstances that hurt us a lot. And in recovery, um, when we learn assertiveness, we learn how to say no to others and say yes to ourselves. And um, this is a crucial skill, you know, that helps us to be direct in communicating with others while still uh, having that integrity, being a person we strive to be. Like if kindness is important, uh, we want to behave in a kind way, yet we want to be honest and direct. And that's crucial skill because if we don't do that, we're going to be surrounded by people who either take advantage of us or um, toxic in some way or another. And in those circumstances, staying sober becomes extremely difficult, especially in early recovery when there's a lot already going on. Even if you're in a perfect environment, like in Bali in meditation retreat, when you're getting sober, it's going to be emotionally tough. Still, <laughs> what happens if we put dysfunctional relationship on top of that um, becomes unbearable? So I think assertiveness is one of the crucial skills to learn in early recovery. And I think people sometimes just, as we talked about the, the function and the value and the purpose of emotions that people equate discomfort and distress as automatic like danger like this isn't good you know like i see someone who seems like uncomfortable they're they're struggling with it and i think the most people then they they want to try to like resolve that right like it's hard for a parent to see a kid um struggling it's hard for a counselor to see uh, a client in that way right so sometimes let's resolve the emotional discomfort but we don't always do that by learning from it. And then we see like repeated cycles of like, I feel this, let's get rid of it, feel it, get rid of it. Instead of actually being like, what purpose does this have? Like, what is this trying to tell me? And to do that, we got to be a little bit more comfortable with what's actually uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think you're very right. 
there is this concept that I really like called emotional endurance. I use it a lot mm-hmm. in my work, you know, just like physical endurance. When we just go to the gym and try to run on a treadmill, we're going to get exhausted in a few minutes. But as we keep doing that, we get something called endurance, ability to run a long distance without feeling exhausted right away, without falling apart. I think same applies to emotions. We gain that skills by training uh, to endure those emotions. However, with somebody who spends most of their life numbing out their emotion, like you know, people who have addiction, of course, that skill is not developed. So as a grown-up, we need to practice that, have emotion, and not distract ourselves, not dissociate, not numb it out uh, with um, some unhealthy behavior or another addiction because addiction switching is so common you know in in recovery but just feel it and be with it without doing anything because usually emotional response (laughs) is something we uh, later regret (laughs) very much so the best way is to just feel it without jumping into action so i think you're very right uh, you know saying that i like the term emotional endurance um i think that that just makes it seem more um, actually relatable that people can think if I can, you know, endure it or, you know, sustain with it versus thinking to just, you know, get rid of it. So um, I'll probably find myself using that term as well. Another, another area I want to talk to you about was um, part of your book talked about, you know, things like forgiveness. And one part that came up was the, uh, something to quote it by was true justice is paying only once for each mistake true injustice is paying more than once for each mistake which you quoted someone else by that statement and i i I want to talk about that because for people who've used substances who are in recovery i think a big part is always struggling with how long do i continue to pay for those past mistakes like i know people that have even been along their journey for many years and they still think about all the things they did when they were you know under the influence or when they were um doing some things like to some people that that's like a a weight that never goes away but you're the description that quote right there is important so how do we talk about that Thank you for a great question. Uh, I think it's very important to discuss those things. Yes, no healing is possible without self-love and self-acceptance because if we think about it, if somebody struggles with self-hatred, well, hatred is a feeling that makes us want to attack the object of hatred. And if that's self-hatred, then it's attack towards self. So how can we change if we have self-hatred? It's impossible then we're prone to self-sabotaging behaviors and things like that so when we're healing from from that i think one of the core points is distinguish behavior and being we can behave bad we can sometimes do things we regret but it doesn't make us a bad human being per se um who we are and what we do are not the same things and no matter what we did in the past as a result of our addiction and of course in addiction we are prone to 
certain things, especially, you know, addiction causes a certain brain damage. It affects the part of our brain responsible for decision making. We cannot think clear. We're more pr prone to impulsive actions. Um, and of course, you know, our stories oftentimes filled with shame, <laughs> embarrassment, misery. My story is just, you know, the same thing. Uh, so important part of that is to understand that our behavior and who we are as a human being are two different things. And even if we had some behavior in the past we're not proud of, it doesn't define us as a human being. We can today choose to live up to our values and slowly, one day at a time, embody who we want to become more and more through taking consistent actions. And that act of dwelling on the past, oh my God, what did I do? Why did I do that? Actually what stands on our way of being of service today and being helpful today and being kind today, whatever we want to embody, we can practice that today. And that's a shift that needs to happen for somebody who wants to get out of those patterns. Yeah, that's like a whole nother deeper level of you know I think we're talking now like identity type work you know I've always thought it's interesting because I always thought the field of substance use and recovery always touched on identity in the way of you know people identifying themselves typically in like the alcoholic addict you know mentality but I always felt like that wasn't really enough of the identity work that needs to go on in for the individual to like really dive into like how they see themselves, who they see themselves as that whole being concept. You know, I, I, I one of the things that stood out in your book was by defining yourself, you are confining yourself mm -hmm. and looking at like how, how do we dive more into that sense of self and identity for people who have felt so lost because of their substance use i stopped hearing you for a second <laughs> sorry you're good now okay yes i hear yeah you. <laughs> so i'm just curious how a lot of like what we were talking about was sounds like identity work that that's needed and for people who have used substances for so long, um, the sense of who they are, you know, they're doing some things that they never thought they would ever do. They, they make promises to themselves that they can't keep. They act certain ways in which they, you know, would never think they would like that whole sense of self really kind of gets thrown in, in a, in a cyclone so much that, I've always felt identity work has been missing in treatment and recovery for people with substance use. Yes, I completely agree. And I think it's a very, very important topic to touch um, in recovery because um, to my personal and professional experience, there's very common something called um, recovery-related identity crisis when a person doesn't know who they are as the old life, old relationship, old patterns go away, sometimes there is a sense of, oh my God, who am I? 
how am I going to live right now? And what I think is the most helpful in this process, what I found helpful is uh, the works of the Eric Erickson, developmental psychologist, who has certain stages that human being has to go through the part of normal uh, psychosocial maturation process. And I noticed that most of the people have certain gaps in those stages. So as adults, what we can do is reparent ourselves with something that called self-parenting. Unfortunately, we cannot go back to our parents and say, hey guys, you did a bad job the first time. <laughs> can you do it again? That's not possible. So that's where a concept of self-parenting goes when we uh, go back to those stages where we need um, to catch up on and, and work through those issues with the tools of self-parenting. Yeah, you dug through a lot of those in, in your book and describing them and breaking them down and, and talking about them almost kind of like a, a mini a mini course in it. And that that just tells me how much you believe in that, like how much you find value in like going through that. Yes, um, it was extremely helpful in my own um, recovery and finding my authentic identity because just as many people in recovery, I had no idea who am I. You know, I had to change my career. I had to change my relationship. My whole social circle changed. And that's early stages when, you know, the old life is closed. The old door closes and the new one is not yet open. You're standing in that unknown dark place it was very scary and the work of uh, Eric Erickson uh, really helped me, you know, and it all comes back to basis, trust versus mistrust. It's the first stage that um, human being supposed to go through as an infant and that forms our concept about the universe. Do we feel it's a safe place to be or do we feel it's a dangerous place to be? And if we feel it's a dangerous place to be, what happens? We have a something I call the cave mentality. We we start under living, under being, under achieving, hiding from life uh, instead of thriving in life, enjoying life, playing <laughs> with life. Um, and that you know, affects everything, um, every stage that comes afterwards. So going back to, um, to that and working through it um, has been extremely helpful because I uh, wholeheartedly believe that every human already has everything what it takes to find themselves there is already that authentic core within it's just we need just not to stand in our own ways to have it unfolded it's not that there's something extraordinary someone needs to do to find themselves no it's actually very very simple it's about letting go of who we are not uh we find ourselves and i think the that even ties into what we first started talking about with like, you know, self-discovery and, and part of that is we're not really designed to really do that. And I, I say that because in a way when we are, when I'm standing in a room and I'm, you know, looking around, I always see everything else, but myself, you know, unless I put a mirror up, and and actually take a look at myself to me that that tells me that oftentimes when people are looking for um the discovery to search for things and to find things about how it's going to accomplish certain stuff or or get them to a place they'd like to be you know 
one of the best places to start looking is like right with you like right and and you're always there <laughs> you're you're always with you but too often people think to look elsewhere and we just don't have that normal like habit of saying well let me first let me let me circle back with myself we're normally looking in other directions other people other things items possessions uh, you know jobs all that um we don't usually look at us first and i think that's where social conditioning concept uh, comes into play a lot because we all grow up in a specific family specific society with certain expectations and especially for those who struggle with addiction it becomes very easy to pretend to be someone we're not to um fake certain behaviors to fit in, to be accepted, to receive uh, admiration. However, that's not a path that will bring to happiness and joy in life. We oftentimes, if we have those patterns, we can be filled uh, with people in the room, but feel extremely alone. And what also came to mind is this phrase of Gandhi, the best way to find um, ourselves is to lose ourselves into service to others. And I think that's what also we come back to what we previously discussed is that it's not by dwelling on our past, we find who we are in the present moment. It's by actually of experiencing the present moment to the fullest ability and to um, being uh, exerting, I guess, our own uh, characteristics and um, being of service to others, that's where we find ourselves in the present moment. Because who we were five years ago might not be the same person. We don't want to define ourselves, just want to experience. And uh, yeah, I think uh, that's a very important point. Yeah, very much so. So I mean, I'm glad that there's more of that talk because I think there's not just, you know, the need to develop coping skills and to develop a support network but part of that you know some deeper digging into one's own self is a big part of that um, but it doesn't get as enough attention as some of the traditional like treatment and recovery goes into uh, there was another thing that i wanted to talk with you about which i think is really important when we talk about like family members uh, loved ones significant others of, of people who are, you know, struggling with substance use or who are, you know, in, in recovery is you mentioned that if you want to help others heal, love them without an agenda. That's a really hard thing for people to, uh, first of all, I would say acknowledge. And two, I think that's hard for people to realize even how to do that right? How to love someone without having an agenda with it. Yes, I, I think it's a important topic to discuss as well. Um, I personally, in my recovery journey, have to redefine love, what I thought about love in the past, um, because my perception of love was very similar to people pleasing. I saw that love is people pleasing is for me to do things that other people want me to do. However, what I learned in my recovery is that love 
sometimes can take different forms. Sometimes actually the most loving thing I can tell to a person is that what they don't want to hear the most. And sometimes the most loving thing I can do is to walk away and not enable a person because again, in the past, I thought enabling was a kind thing, um, taking away the consequences of the person's actions and helping them through that. I thought that it was a kind and loving thing. In recovery, I learned that it's not. Sometimes allowing the person to hit the rock bottom is the most loving thing. You know, so, so that's where this phrase comes into place, love others without an agenda, because it talks about accepting others. And acceptance comes um with not trying to change anyone it's just accepting the human being the way they are and then just uh, seeing how can I be of maximum service to this human being and sometimes again it's um by taking an action that um might not be that other person <laughs> would prefer um but if it feels kind and I wholeheartedly feel that that's how I can contribute the most to the well-being of this person then if I'm kind and, and I genuinely love this person then I'm willing to do it I've often found one of the things that I think helps people separate um you know letting people do what they want or is part of me says I can accept what people do but that doesn't mean I endorse it so like I can acknowledge that people are going to do things that I'm not necessarily a fan of, but it doesn't mean that I say if they do that, that means they have my stamp of approval, like plenty of clients and, and patients over the years have known that there are things that they know I wouldn't say, yeah, you know, AJ approved this. He, he gave his, his stamp of approval, but they know I also, respect someone's autonomy that they're gonna they're gonna make choices and then how do i help them when they make those choices or they're contemplating those choices or recovering from those choices but i i don't i think there's that that difference between you can accept that someone is doing something has done something but it doesn't mean i approve of it or i i gave them my here's your card that says you're allowed to do this because I said so. Yes, I think it's a very important point. And uh, in my experience with acceptance uh, of other people, um, I had a similar experience because there were certain people which I, the only reason why relationship existed even is because I didn't accept the human being because I still had this idea that I can change it. I can prove it. I can do something and that can shift. Sometimes when there is this acceptance, wholehearted acceptance, the natural consequences of that is ending the relationship. And that's a bit of a hard pill to swallow. However, even in this circumstances, it's the most loving um, action. You know, sometimes the most loving thing two human beings can do toward each other is to part ways. Yeah, I think that that does happen. You know, like that's people are, you know, that's where I believe in the the footprints, right? People leave footprints and some people, they continue to leave footprints. Um, some people did and now they don't anymore. But um, your life still 
was impacted by that. Like this, the sand still remembers those original ones, but sometimes, you know, they, they come and they go and they, they're not as impactful anymore. So I was, I, I was really good to glad to read that because, you know, I, I empathize with the family members, the loved ones, significant others who are struggling, you know, with someone's use and even struggling when someone is, is not using, but I really believe loving someone without an agenda attached to it is more than likely what's going to be best. You know, when there's, I kind of, I've looked at it as like love is like a gift. Right. And when we have an agenda, it's more like giving someone the receipt, (laughs) like like saying like well here's this nice gift but also like um here's the bill here's here's (laughs) here's what you owe me for that when that's not really what love is meant to do i completely agree i think that conditional love is actually one of the most unloving (laughs) things a human being can do because what it says I like you, I love you, if you do this and this and this and that. And if you don't do those, I don't like you. So we're projecting some image on the human being in front of us, and we're not allowing them to express themselves authentically. Uh, We are actually manipulating them through conditional love to uh, behave in a way that is comfortable and uh, that we like which is very, very unloving. Uh, The most loving thing here to do is to just allow a human being to be who they are um, and then decide if that aligns with us or not. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good um, topic. I'm I'm really glad that came up. I think that's something that when we work with other people and other people are in someone's life, like we have more of a conversation of what love does look like because i think we we assume people know that or that people should know what it is to love unconditionally or love with condition and and sometimes people need to have a re-education on some of that topic yes i completely agree with that and even when it comes to addiction in in particular Uh, There's the numerous research that suggests that engaging in addictive substances numbs out empathy. And empathy is very important for us to feel connection, to feel love with other human beings. So oftentimes, when it comes to love, those of us who spend many years in addiction actually don't know what it's like and what is healthy love, what is that unconditional love. So in recovery, we need to relearn it as our empathy awakens again. <laughs> so in in kind of wrapping some things up, someone who is listening to this episode and they they want to read your book and they're they're getting into it, like what's what's one of the best things or best advice you could give for someone who then decides to dive into it and start reading it? Like, is there, is there a certain approach that you are um, like hoping someone takes with it? Is there a part that you want them to, to really take away with that can make this really 
you know, impactful. I saw, I saw you put a lot of exercises in there. You put a lot of uh, different things for people to to just try and not just read. What what was it that you would give as far as advice to people who are, yeah, I want to read this and, you know, getting the most out of it? I guess the first thing that I would like to say to some to my reader is that you're exactly where you need to be, that you're okay. If early recovery feels uncomfortable, it's okay. <laughs> you know, you're doing well. There's nothing wrong with you. And the second thing, my book... Um, it meant to be read slowly. It's uh, a slow read. It's not something to rush through. I have experiential exercises there for a reason, because just grasping theoretical concepts, not going to help us change. You know, it's like, I can tell you all day long, um, describe you how strawberry tastes like, but if you never tasted it, you're never going to know, no matter how, much I describe it to you. That's why I have those experiential exercises um, after each theoretical com uh, um, content that I share for a reader to actually experience that. So because that experiential knowledge is what really transforms us, that, where we actually learn. So um, yeah, I think my book can be helpful to somebody in early recovery uh, when life seems like a mess, um, when uh, everything seems complicated, emotions are um, going out like a tornado and life seems falling apart. Know that it's a normal part of uh, recovery. You're exactly where you need to be and you can build a beautiful new life on that foundation. How? What's your best recommendation? Because even when you said it's not meant for, you know, fast reading how do you how do you recommend to people to take it slow because I, I know that's a challenge for people when they they have like a book and they think they're gonna dive right into it so they can learn from it apply it and just sort of really like run with it um you're, you're trying to tell people to more walk with it like how how best can people do that well, uh, because my book is uh, pretty much every chapter is a crash course in essential life skill to build an early recovery. Um, as with any skill um, that we learn in life, um, there is a part when we uh, learn the theory, but there's also lots of practical component that actually needs to happen for us to master the skill. And my book offers um, like a training in all of those skills but to actually master it uh, there is this effort um, persistency dedication that is needed so my suggestion would be to read the chapter um, do the experiential knowledge exercises do journaling and then uh, come back to it again to build a strong 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 skill because sometimes the repetition is the mother of learning and sometimes just reading something once, not gonna um, answer all of your questions. You know, there are certain books uh, I have in my life that I can read multiple times and every time I gain something new out of it. And I think that applies to uh, mastering those essential life skills such as emotional regulation, for example. That's great. Yeah, I've... I've... That's one of the few times I've heard, you know, someone who didn't necessarily push people to just go 
read it, dive into it, run with it. Um, but you're actually more, this is more of a long haul. This is to really take away from it. It takes, you know, more time and to, to do those things. So that's very, um, you know, wise to hear. So I'm, I'm really grateful for you to hear that. So we're going to tell everyone where they can find your book and look for your book and all that. Um, any last parting words for listeners? Um, yes, I guess I would like to say um, emotions are your friends. <laughs> um, don't run away from them. Uh, learn to embrace them. Um, and um, even if the re- early recovery feels chaotic and painful and uncomfortable, there is ways through that um, and you can um, completely transform your life um, into becoming beyond your wildest dreams. It's very possible. There are multiple people who've done it. And if you're in early recovery, struggling, just know there is hope, there is faith, and you have plenty of resources. And my book is one of them, but there are plenty of resources to help you through it. So you're not alone and you can do it. Thank you so much um, for for the book that you you know provided, wrote for people and now people can have as a resource and really appreciate the time that you came in and talked to us on this episode. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to me. Thank you for having me. Um, and I'm really happy to share uh, this information and be helpful to uh, the listeners of your amazing <laughs> podcast channel, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, listeners pay attention to it. Look out for her book. And as always, we hope you learn something. You've been listening to Talking Addiction and Recovery with Andrew J. Schreier. We're so glad you've joined us and invite you to connect further with the show and these topics at www.andrewjschreier.com. That's Andrew J. S. C. H. R. E. I. E. R.com. You can also email us directly at talkingaddictionandrecovery at gmail.com and connect on social media Instagram at Talking Addiction and Recovery, Facebook, Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast, and Twitter at TalkAR underscore podcast. To stay connected and never miss an episode, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Until next time, friends, let's keep talking addiction and recovery.